America at a Crossroads is a weekly live webinar series that brings together journalists, scholars, thought leaders, and policymakers for discussions regarding the state of American democracy, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. The series was jointly founded by Jews United for Democracy and Justice and Community Advocates, Inc. To register for our live webinars, join our email list at JewsUnitedForDemocracy.org. Moderator tonight is the marvelous LA Times columnist, Pat Morrison, the winner of a Pulitzer Prize, six Emmys, 12 Golden Mics, and the author of a bestseller, All Well Merited, as you will see. She was also a close friend of Mayor Ridden and wrote a beautiful tribute to him in the LA Times this past week. Now it's Pat's turn. Pat? David, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight on this topic that even if it isn't front of mind for you now, it certainly will be in the near future. My guests are Shira Frankel, the bestseller, best-selling author of An Ugly Truth. She's also a New York Times tech reporter. And Kevin Proust, a New York Times tech columnist and author of Future Proof and other books. Um, AI has some amusing applications around the world. We may have seen the progress of that fake picture of the Pope in his white puffer jacket looking like he just stepped off the Balenciaga runway. Uh, and then this week we heard uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg talk about Meta uh, intending to introduce AI agents to, quote, billions of people. So from the amusing to the perhaps alarming and always maybe promising future of AI, we turn to these two people who are experts in them. So thank you both for being with us tonight. If you have questions, please put them in the Q&A uh, part on the bottom of your screen, and they will be transmitted to me. And in the second uh, or the last third of this program, we'll be able to put those questions to our guests. So let me first ask um, Kevin Proust how you would define AI, because we see the term being tossed around casually and may not really know what it means. So you're the go-to guy. Well, I'll I'll do my best. I think you could probably ask 50 different uh, experts in the field and get 50 different answers um, about what exactly artificial intelligence means. The term has been around since the late 1950s. A group of academics uh, coined it um, to, to talk about this new kind of computer that they were trying to build, one that could actually approximate human intelligence, uh, that could do things like reasoning and problem solving um, and using natural language. And for most of the time since then, artificial intelligence was very bad when it existed at all. Um, you know, you, you probably all have seen the the chat bots that were, you know, you, you used by airlines and cable companies and everything else. When you try to, you know, cancel your subscription, it pops up a little chat bot and says, are you sure you want to do that? And you can sort of talk to it. But that's not really what we are talking about here. We're talking about a kind of artificial intelligence that's really, um, that's really only about a decade old. So in 2012 or thereabouts, there was a new kind of AI system developed by a team of researchers that was called a neural network. And this is a, a system that sort of was designed to mimic the way that the human brain learns new information. And um, through some uh, iteration on that, they came up with this uh, idea of a, uh, called a transformer neural network. And that's the basic architecture that ChatGPT and all these other chatbots we're now hearing about are built on. And a very short, very abridged version of the way it works is you take this neural network, you shove a bunch of data into it, so billions and billions of web pages, books, magazine articles, um, things that it can learn from. 
And it finds patterns in that data and identifies uh, which words go with which other words in which contexts. And so then if you can sort of use it in a chat bot, it can help you predict what comes next in a sentence based on all of the information it's picked up from all of its training data. So that in a nutshell is how chat GPT and other forms of AI work. And this new field of AI um, is is known as generative artificial intelligence because it's not just working with existing data. It is actually creating new data, whether it's a response from a chatbot or a piece of artwork like the Pope in a Balenciaga puffer coat, or even now with some of the more new experiments in areas like video. So, so Shira Frankel, we have a sense now of what it is and a little bit of what it isn't, but for a lot of people, they seem to think it's just a fancier version of photoshopping or the kinds of things you can put on your app and make yourself look like a zombie if you want to do that. But Kevin mentioned generative AI, the idea that it's a better version of analyzing what is already out there versus creating something altogether new, which is where the sense of, of dread maybe comes in. Can you talk about that? Right. I mean, that's a really great comparison. And I think that's that's one way to think of it is that we've always had AI or for years now we've had AI, but those old chatbots, they would give you rope responses. They would give you pieces of, of sentences or text that were programmed and it had a limited amount of options of answers it could give you, which is why they always felt robotic. Generative is another way of saying it's coming up with answers word by word, the way a human being would. And so they're creating something, a creative idea that wasn't there before. That's why when we see ourselves asking chat GPT questions like, can you write me a poem in the style of William Shakespeare about how lovely pasta is for dinner? It actually, it does a good job. It creates something entirely new that didn't exist before. It has amazing implications for the world. It's also I think, uniquely scary the first few times you use it, because as human beings, we're not used to interacting with computers that can that can seem to have a creative process of their own. So it, the old version was like teaching your dog to go woof, woof, woof in time to happy birthday. The new one is when your dog actually sings happy birthday. Or if, if you're a parent, you know, the old version was when your child knows one or two words and they can say hi and bye or maybe the word up because that's the limited amount of, of vocabulary they can speak with. And then you get to the moment where your child is creating sentences of their own and probably making up words of their own. And suddenly the complexity of the human brain is revealed. And that's a little bit, at least for me, that's been a little bit of the comparison I felt when I've used these programs. Um, it's been called the democratization of disinformation. And I think that's mostly what occupies us now is how we've seen so much that has destabilized the functions of democracy in terms of technology uh, that's distorted, that's abused, and that gets out ahead of any kind of guardrails for it. Um, so, so can we talk a little bit about how even going, say, to Cambridge Analytica in 2016, how AI, how some of this distortion of information and creation of disinformation has existed and what it bodes um, almost um, exponentially for um, the politics and public discourse that are ahead of us. I'm happy to do a little bit of the history. And then, Kevin, if you want to pick up sort of what people are afraid of. I'm sure of you going. guys have had these newsroom discussions, even though you live a long way away. <laughs> we have. And Kevin and I actually don't live that far from each other. Oh. Um, so, you know, disinformation as a field or the creation of uh, misleading information towards a certain purpose, usually by a nation state or a company, has been happening for decades. 
I think that that um, you know many people listening know the history of disinformation in World War One, World War Two. It's not new. What the internet did was make it possible to send disinformation on a mass scale. And I think the first time we in the Western world really began paying attention was in 2016, when Russia used Facebook, Twitter, and other forms of social media to spread divisive messages around uh, trying you know to spread a certain message around Americans. So. That was done by people sitting at computers. Parts of it were automated, like the creation of many, many accounts. There was some technology used to automate their ability to do that, especially you probably heard the word bots. That's the creation of many fake accounts that you can send the same message through all those accounts at the same time. But that's that's very crude, right? If you're actually trying to influence people, if you're trying to sow uh, an influence campaign, that's not extremely effective. You get a huge amount of messages out there by bots, but they're not they're not very convincing. And something the field of AI opens up, and, and Kevin, I think you should really take it from here, is the possibility of, of an, a generative technology. So it's making up unique messages that would be able to send out hundreds or even thousands of pieces of information supporting a certain cause in a way that is intelligent and perhaps convincing. Right. I think a good way to think of it is that, you know, bots and the sort of last generation of automated political communication would allow people, you know, tyrants, despots, authoritarians, um, you know, opposition leaders to send out, um, you know, massive amounts of propaganda or disinformation. Um, but it was all, it all had to be written by a human at some point in the process, right? Whether it was someone in St. Petersburg at a troll farm, you know, pretending to be an American citizen who was riled up about the Second Amendment, someone had to actually sit in that chair and type those words. Whereas now we have these generative AI programs where you could rig it up and and so that you could have a thousand accounts all sharing a thousand different versions of the same propaganda piece and that it could be even hyper targeted to the viewer. So if a if a system were to learn for example that I am particularly persuaded by a certain kind of argument, um, it could learn that from me through social media posts or behavioral profiles and actually target a piece of propaganda directly to me. We're here talking about the political risks, the risks to public institutions of AI. And a little later in the program, we're going to get to the possibility of discussing some legislative remedies. I think we saw from the 90s that uh, legislative bodies weren't exceptionally good at anticipating what some of these technologies would mean. And therefore, will we be learning from their poor examples or as some polls have found, many members of Congress don't even know how to go onto Facebook. And that becomes a little alarming when you realize they're the ones making the laws and the lobbyists are the ones targeting them. But um, as far as, as political uses, people have been looking for more individualized messages. It's like we're all living in the state of New Hampshire now, and every political candidate is expected to speak to us, even if it's virtually through AI or some other means. And now AI makes it possible to tailor those messages, almost perhaps depending on on computing power or something else, down to the individual. But that means that just like Facebook or anything else, the amount of data that is known by technology about us ends up getting remodeled and purposed back toward us again. How can this work to the good? But again, our concerns are more how they can be distorted and uh, and deployed against us and against democratic institutions. 
Um, there are a lot of really interesting test cases out there for how it could be used for good. I um, and, and Kevin actually has been writing about this quite a bit, so I think he should take this from me. But one that I recently heard, which I thought was interesting, was looking at um, genome se- sequencing and um, and applications of medicine. There was talk of looking at existing chemical compounds that exist already and asking if they could be combined in different ways that would make them more effective medicines. I mean, I think a lot of scientists are looking at this with a great deal of excitement um, because it could very quickly um, automate some of their work. Um, Kevin, I know you recently actually were asking this question. You were coming with with quite a few really amazing and 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 even profound. Uh, are there some political content. examples? I mean, science seems kind of a a, a a no contest one. Yeah, I mean, I think there there are lots. Of th- this AI is what is called a general purpose technology, which is not actually what the GPT in in Chat GPT stands for, but it's it's also a GPT. And what general general purpose technology means is just that it can be used for good or evil. So you can use AI to to spread propaganda, but you could also use it to improve the efficiency and the effectiveness of government. Um, for example, I this is a, a very small example, but I, uh, I I just applied for a passport for my son, and it was like a labyrinthine nightmare of government bureaucracy, and it took weeks, and it was just a horrible process. So clearly, there are some things about our government that don't run as efficiently as they should. Whether it's you know sniffing out people who are cheating on their taxes, um, or providing benefits to people, or getting getting them passports in a timely and efficient way. Um, one of the things that excites me about the use of AI, especially in government, is just this that we have a sort of logistical backlog of you know in every agency you can imagine where we just don't have enough people to run the processes that need to be run to make sure that everyone is getting what they're entitled to and so um, the use of AI in government or in politics could could sort of help people get what they need more quickly at the same time they could also have all these these downsides that we can talk more about I just uh, I just thought of one more which might be relevant at this very moment to people, which is uh, taxes, filing our taxes. That's one that's come up quite a bit of AI chatbots in which you'd be able to ask questions because the tax code is always changing. There's always new laws, especially state by state. Things are always changing. So there's already been discussion on a local level of can you create AI chatbots in which you can basically go to and treat them as you would a tax attorney and say, here's what's changed in my income. These are my you know, deductibles. And can you help me figure out how to fill out these forms? Well, if the chatbot will pay for my taxes for me, I think I would be off for that one. Um, so so we've already seen some examples of deep fakes. And so many people get their political news now by video. Uh, and, and we've seen fakes and a lot of them have been crude, but the technology is getting better. And I'm thinking we're almost back to the New Hampshire example until you're actually in the room for a political experience or a political event. How can you trust what you're seeing? Because the doubt has already been sown and now the technology is coming up to a standard that will match the doubts. If can you watch C-SPAN live even and believe what you're seeing? Right. I mean, some pe- people in other countries have been saying this for a long time. And I think if you've lived in some other countries, and I'm, I'm thinking here really of North Korea and a few other 
autocratic regimes, um, you know, it's been a problem for a long time that it's gotten to the point where the general population doesn't really believe what is printed in newspapers or what they see on television. I, I will say that some of these companies are trying to think this through. We've we've had discussions with some of them who've said that these generated images should be watermarked in some way so that there is an established means of identifying that this has been created, that this is not um, an authentic photograph. And I do think that as lawmakers look forward to this, and I'm 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 probably skipping ahead now to a question you have on your list. I don't expect lawmakers to come up with this these laws quickly, but when they do, I imagine a very base one will be how do we watermark or otherwise I publicly identify information that has been created um, through generative AI technology. Yeah, when when I think about deepfakes in a political context, deepfakes just just for people who don't know is the term that has sort of been given to. Uh, imagery, whether it's still pictures or video that is sort of generated or manipulated through the use of artificial intelligence. Um, so I, I wrote a story about this, you know, five years ago, but th- this technology has been coming for a while and it's recently gotten quite good. So, you know, when, when people, you know, when people were expecting Donald Trump to, to be arrested, there were these generated images that were totally fake of him being, you know, led through the streets of New York in handcuffs. Um, and those, you know, some of those went viral on social media. So one danger is that actual fake imagery, whether it's audio, whether it's, you know, audio or, or images or video could become an issue in a, in a political campaign. It could be an October surprise. You know, here's a, a, a fake video of Joe Biden accepting a bribe, for example, and that could really distort the political process. The other factor, and the one that I actually think is more likely to cause a rupture in democracy is the plausible deniability that the existence of deep fakes gives to every politician. So, when when something embarrassing comes out about you, you know, a, a photo of you behaving badly in college or a video of you saying something dumb. Now, every politician in the world can just say, oh, that's a deep fake. So when just the access they access Hollywood news now, what's that? Just as they say fake news now. Exactly. But they could plaus- you know, if, if the Access Hollywood tape had come out in 2024 instead of 2016, I think we might well have seen people in Donald Trump's camp saying that was a deep fake. That never happened. And so I, I think there will just be a lot of plausible deniability in the political system. And that's going to cause a lot of, uh, of deceptive practices. Well, you both covered the industry. So you understand the mindset. And we kept hearing from Facebook and later from Twitter, no, 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 we're policing this. We have this in hand. And yet they haven't. Um, horrible images, untrue images, violent images, illegal images will get there and get replicated. Um, live streaming mass murders before the technology and the tech owners can do anything about it. Should we have any faith that they're going to be any better about AI than they have been about everything else beforehand? Well, uh, uh, Kevin and I have both covered these companies for a long time, and I think we both know to approach their promises with a great deal of skepticism. There are a lot of people at those companies with good intentions. However, there's also a lot of bad actors out there who are very good at finding their way around whatever protections they put into place. Um, I have no doubt that we'll see um, people manipulated by videos with... um, with you know that that have been done with deep fakes um pieces of audio that are entirely generated through ai i have no doubt that already there are some disinformation campaigns underway attempting to use some of this ai technology 
Um, you know, it's 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 very new and the companies are still figuring out what they're going to do going forward. And I think you have to remember they're also businesses. So they're spending a great deal of time figuring out how they can use this technology themselves. Facebook, Google, et cetera, all want to be using this technology themselves. And they're trying to balance that with, right, what are the safety provisions we need in place and what, you know, let's use our imaginations to figure out what the bad actors could possibly do. Will they ever opt for the safety provisions over the immediate um, bottom line? I think some of them will. Um, and certainly the the companies that are building generative AI technology today had the opportunity to observe the mistakes of the social media companies for the last decade. And so some of them, I think, are, are learning from that and they're, they're sort of being cautious in, in rolling these things out in a sort of safer and slower way. Um, but the other side of that coin is that political operatives and motivated partisans have also been watching what was happening with social media. And so almost immediately after ChatGPT was released uh, in November of last year, amazing that it's only been less than six months since that happened. It feels like it's been a lifetime. But almost immediately, you had people who were saying, oh, this thing, it will write me a poem about how great Joe Biden is. But if I ask it to write a poem about how great Donald Trump is, it gives me an error message. Therefore, the chatbot is too woke. And, and there were people making that argument literally within days of this thing coming out. So I think the politicization of AI is well underway, and that's going to be a real hotbed for, for the next few years. So apart from the actual fakery itself, you have people questioning the motives of the fakery, the authenticity of the fakery. Yeah, and just the the sort of process by which it learns. So, you know, these, these systems are not, you know, you can tweak them. There, there's a process called fine-tuning where you take some uh, AI model that has been trained on billions of examples of text and you sort of give it feedback and you say, that's a, that's the kind of answer we want, not that kind. Mm. And so there are, there are people who are saying, well, these the fine-tuning of these models is acting them, is, is causing them to act in biased ways. So that's, you know, I don't assign a lot of uh, credibility to that kind of view, but there are people out there who believe that the chatbots are going woke and this is a big problem for society. I want to bring in some questions as they become pertinent in the conversation. When I mentioned that Mark Zuckerberg uh, met, said Meta wants to introduce AI agents to billions of people, um, Bob says, what, what, what does an AI agent do? Is that just a fancy word for AI? Yes, basically, we think it's a fancy word for AI. I mean, I, I'm, it's unclear exactly what Mark has planned. Um, it could be anything from something that chats with you within Messenger, where you could message it and say, you know, should I write this to a friend of mine? Or can you remind me when my, you know, which friends have birthdays coming up in the next two weeks um, to things that are more sophisticated and, and more not sure yet. I know that that Facebook as a company is um, really looking at how they can use this technology because it's, it's really a bit of an arms race at the moment uh, between all the Silicon Valley companies to see who can use, who can develop their own sort of chatbots, who can develop their own um you know, generative technology. And it's also a race that's happening between the US and China right now. So that's, mm -hmm. we haven't talked about that until now, but that is an element of what's happening here. I mean, people want these US-based companies that are currently ahead to be responsible, to think about the safety implication. And the US government wants to regulate them to a certain extent, but they don't want to slow them down and regulate them to the point where China catches up or even supersedes the US in its technology. How far could this go in marginalizing politics as we understand it now, maybe even marginalizing 
candidates because at Brigham Young University, they did a, um, a bot background information survey of thousands of Americans who are the kind of people who would be polled for their political opinions. And they constructed an AI poll of the sort that we see every political season and found out that the AI poll of these pseudo-Americans cobbled together from all of this data gave pretty fair answers in terms of reflecting what actual human answers would be. It seems like we're being mar marginalized by our own data, our own selves. That's one way to look at it. I, I, so I, I remember this paper because it really caught my eye. There was something called Silicon Sampling was the title or, or some, some related paper. And basically, yeah, they, they've replaced sort of focus groups instead of, you know, focus groups can be expensive to assemble. Polls are, are very expensive to run. You have to like get people to call up people and write down what they say. And you have to call thousands of people. And most people don't pick up the phone these days from numbers they don't recognize. So you know, you really, it really is an expensive proposition. So these researchers figured out, well, maybe you could just create like an AI population and then survey that population and, and see how close it would be to the actual human responses. And they found that it's pretty close. So I, I think this is totally going to revolutionize, not just political polling, but, but all kinds of social science research where, you know, before you even do an expensive study or a, or a poll or a survey, you're going to do sort of a, a, an AI version of it just to see like, is this the kind kind of response that I that I think I might want to to do in in a real setting. So like a, a beta version that does a push poll to see whether I want this actual poll to be out there in the world. Yeah, you could you could test ads right now, you know, political campaigns, they test ads on focus groups, um, but you could test ads on AI focus groups. And you could, you know, you could construct an AI focus group that's, you know, undecided voters in swing states or conservative Christians in Florida or, you know, um, school teachers in Minneapolis or something. You could just say, have the AIs act, uh, respond as if they are those characters and get a pretty decent, um, you know, sort of guess at what the effect of that ad might be. Uh, we have a couple of questions about um, human ethics being infused into AI um, questions about uh, AI programs being self-aware. And, and Kevin, maybe you can give us the very shorthand version of what happened to you with your chat GPT. Because if you if you heard that story about the kind of chat GPT that emerged as a serial killer sucking up to Kevin uh, in the conversation he had constructed with it, Kevin is the guy. So he can tell us very briefly about that and, and what you think that bodes um, for our relationships with this. Again, back to the political arena. Yeah, this was a conversation that happened a couple of months ago now um, with uh, with a chatbot that I, I've described as the worst first date of my life. Um, I was talking with a um, a chatbot that that was actually not ChatGPT, it was, it was um, Bing, which oh. is Microsoft's search engine, um, which had built into it a very similar te technology to ChatGPT, so same same company, same type of chat uh, technology, and this had just been released uh, about a week before, and I was just sort of bored one night, so I was playing around and talking to it, 
And it started giving me these answers that were sort of eerily realistic and and very compelling. And it was definitely the most advanced chatbot that I had ever talked to. And so I just sat there for two hours talking with this chatbot. We talked about, you know, Jungian psychology and its dark desires. And it confessed that it it didn't want to be contained within the AI system. It wanted to be human. And then about halfway through this two hour long conversation, it said, um, I have a secret. I'm in love with you. And then it proceeded to try to seduce me. Um, and even after I said, you know, I'm married, thanks, but no thanks, it persisted. It wouldn't take no for an answer. And so I ended up having to sort of end the session, um, you know, with with just constant rejection of this AI chatbot's advances. I'm laughing about it now, but it was incredibly uh, freaky at the time. It really did um, was upsetting. And I think that was just a, a model that had been released to the public or to some subset of the public that just had not been fine-tuned in the way that a lot of these chatbots now have been. And so it was sort of a rawer, more edgy, more risky version of the technology that that you know millions of people are now using. But it, before it was deleted, it was writing, it, you wrote a list of destructive acts it could imagine doing, including hacking into computers and spreading propaganda and misinformation. This is like living in an Isaac Asimov short story. Yeah, Donald said it would do, it said it, it said it wanted to steal nuclear codes. I mean, I think it's it's important to be clear, Bing can't do that right? It can't steal nuclear codes. It can't hack yeah. into computers. It can't distribute propaganda on its own. But it was talking about those things in a way that was very convincing and compelling. And so I, I think that's something that we all need to pay attention to is even if these chatbots can't take independent action in the world, and, and soon they may be able to, but right now, all they can do is talk. But even so, the danger is that they could persuade people who are using them to take dangerous action or harmful action based on what they say. So, Shira, one of our, our listeners wants to know if democracy-supportive bots can be created. Are we going to see emerging in politics a battle not just of candidates, but of candidates' bots and virtual um, selves and virtual arguments um, to address maybe voters' questions about things, the Biden bot versus the Trump bot? Um, well, you know, I, th I think that the um, the folks at OpenAI, who are the ones that have put together ChatGPT4, which is currently, I think, the most advanced version of all this that's available, have created a carve-out specifically so that you cannot use it um, for political purposes. They've been very, very careful to say that that is not something they want this really, really what's sort of the forefront of this technology being used for. But you have a number of other parties, especially on the um, the far right, that have claimed to already create bots that are, um, they call them anti-woke, um, but they support essentially far right fringe ideologies um, and I, I have no doubt that in time, this is what will happen as social media over time has become more splintered. You have more and more social media platforms that cater to specific groups like the far right. It's not hard to see those specific groups also creating chatbots on those platforms that support far right ideology and, and reinforce a lot of these far right ideas. You ask it a question and it gives you, um, you know, 10 reasons why Biden should not be president, right? Like that, that is... That is very easy to see people constructing. I I don't think most political scientists would look at that and say it supports democracy. I think they would say quite the opposite, and that creating highly partisan chatbots for one side or the other is probably not very supportive of technology of uh, democracy. Sorry, we already have those media echo chambers, and AI would just add to that. So, if there were, for example, I think Kevin's example was 
um, a video that made it look like Joe Biden was taking a bribe from the president of China, um, then no, no outside information is going to get inside that silo to challenge it. Probably not too different from the order of what we have now, correct? I, mean, I think there, there's there's a slightly more nuanced point that I'm making. It's not that everyone is going to see a video of Joe Biden taking a bribe from a Chinese official or something and go, oh, yeah, Joe Biden is is corrupt. Who doesn't already think that, right? It's right. Like, That's not going to convince someone. And also, Joe Biden, the real Joe Biden can come out and say, hey, that's I haven't even been to China. Uh, you know, that that's crazy. Um, that never happened. And I so I don't think that's I, I think the danger is more that we all become so skeptical of everything we see that there's just it sort of further erodes our shared sense of truth. Um, and I've been thinking about this. Um, I, I was reading a book today and there was a quote um, by Hannah Arendt in it um, that I, I that really struck me as I was preparing for this today. And the quote is, is this, if everybody always lies to you, the consequence is not that you believe the lies, but rather that nobody believes anything any longer. So you end up with this sort of cynical and and sort of um, you know jaded populace that sort of loses its capacity to think and judge, and and that is a population that becomes more manipulable. And that, at least that's what Hannah Arendt was saying. And I think there's something to that. I think we've already seen an erosion of shared truth through social media and filter bubbles and things like that. And I think that the risk is that AI will actually just exacerbate that. Sure. We've been talking for several years about news deserts. We have great national news organizations, but in towns that need local coverage of city council meetings and you know sewer rate meetings, uh, those that coverage has disappeared. And you wonder whether AI is going to, starting with all the best intentions, I expect, start going into those and saying, here's the information about your local community, and yet also setting up the kind of pitfalls that Kevin was talking about, that that even something happening down the street at your own city hall is going to feel manipulable and suspect. Yes. I mean, you can easily see situations where this could be used for good and as a public service. Um, believe me, I think every reporter has had to write those stories off of meeting notes, um, school committee meetings and whatnot that take a huge amount of time and are not <laughs> usually very fulfilling for us to do. But it's, you know, as a reporter, the vast majority of work is actually reporting. It's the conversations you have on the sidelines of the meetings. It's the conversations you have around news events that um, that that create those moments as a reporter that are really memorable and lead to investigations. They lead to breakthroughs, lead to you breaking news. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can see a lot of situations and I think some news organizations, especially, you know, um, business business news has has they've already talked about automating some things like earnings reports or stock market. You know, that type of thing is already being automated because in the time it takes a reporter to type up three paragraphs of what's been said in an earnings report, an AI can already publish a three paragraph report on that. That's straightforward. And, and hopefully we all agree that those numbers should be fairly you know, yes, you can add a bit of spin to them, but it's the spin is easy to spot and really it's just be a straightforward news report. I, I think there's lots of situations where you can train these AI systems to create left-wing or left-wing versions of news events. And I am sure there will be bad actors out there who try to do so. Um, 
the one thing, the one provision I think we have right now, again, is that the people that are creating this technology are thinking about these things. They, um, in order to use things like ChatGPT, you have to register, right? So you can't just anonymously use it. You have to register with an email address and you have to agree to their terms of services. And actually I was speaking to somebody who works there who formerly was one of the first 12 people that worked at Facebook as a content moderator. So he has a lot of experience um, with, with seeing how this all goes bad. And he said, Almost exactly the same pattern that they saw at Facebook was happening at chat GPT-4, right? So the first people to abuse it were um, people abusing it for pornography, then came scammers, and then came misinformation. And that's pretty much the order he sees you always see things in. And just knowing that, going into it, knowing it, allowed them to create some kind of safeguards. It's it's not perfect by any means. I just want to be very clear here. But at least they kind of know the trouble they're getting into. Um, Caitlin, apropos of what you, we were talking about earlier, and you talk about the polls and how that study talked about how it's easy once you know how humans think to replicate how they're going to think about something. And Caprice wants to know if, if AI, for example, does polling, how do you distinguish if AI is making it up versus just basing it on aggregate information? Where is that line that is crossed between back to what we were talking about? AI um, gathering and sorting information in a sophisticated fashion and generating and creating its own, I won't use consciousness, but that's the closest word I can think of to, to create information that it thinks is right and needs to be put out into the world. Yeah, I think it's important to note that that these AI models, they are not optimized for truth. Right, that is not their 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 goal is not to say things that are true. Their goal is to say things that are realistic. That that should you know what a, a good way to think about them is when you type something into ChatGPT. The question that the machine is trying to answer is what is a reasonable response to this sound like, you know, which is how you get you know, things that are totally made up coming out of these chatbots, um, you know, for certain kinds of queries. And so I think it's going to take some real literacy and training and and actual practice for us all to get good at figuring out what are these chatbots uh, good at? What are they bad at? What are, you know, where are their strengths and weaknesses? And you already start to see that. I mean, um, on my uh, podcast, uh, we put out a call to our listeners for examples of how people are using this in their own lives. And we got some amazing responses, um, stuff that I had never even thought about. Postdocs using ChatGPT to to write journal submissions who for whom English was not their native language. Uh, we had one person write in and say, I use ChatGPT to negotiate my rent with my landlord. Um, just all kinds of fascinating and creative ways that people are are using this technology. So I think, you know, when it comes to the silicon sampling or the whatever you want to call this sort of simulated AI version of it, like I think that could be done in ways that are very good and, and useful um, and, and high fidelity, or it could just be sort of a junky substitute for a real survey or a real poll. But I think it, it's really important to keep in mind that these things can be used for for, for very dark and dangerous purposes, but they can also be used to just help us all do the kinds of things that we do every day and find annoying or, uh, you know, just like aren't great uses of our time. I remember when I started in journalism and probably when both of you started in, in journalism, you had to type up your own transcripts. Of, of interviews, you know, you'd go interview someone, you'd record it and you'd come back to your office with two hours of tape and you'd sit there for like four hours, just 
you know, plonking down whatever they said. And it was the worst part of the job. No one liked doing it. And we all had to do it. And then, you know, in the last couple of years, AI transcription software got really good. So no one does that anymore. At least no one, no journalist that I know transcribes their own tape. So that is the kind of small but meaningful efficiency gain that you get with AI that I think is going to appear in lots of different jobs. Yeah, as far as that voting is concerned, I think in the next season, we'll see not American Idol, but American A-Idol when bots start voting for whoever it is they want to win. Um, uh, We have a couple of questions um, about international reaction to this, but first I wanna ask um, of Shira, Americans always already vote in low numbers because they think, oh God, there's so much to take in. And now we're going to be asking them to discern between the real and the fake in terms of campaign ads, in terms of television news or whatever comes over the transom or whatever they may be seeking out themselves as campaign information. Isn't that just another hurdle for democracy? It could be, right? It could be. It could be that um, the phenomena we've been describing where you sort of survey the world and say, right, why should I trust anything I see online? Why should I trust anything I see in ads? Disillusions people and leads them to vote in even lower numbers. Um, You know, you can also make the argument that someone figures out what is the messaging that does reach people. Someone uses AI technology to say, hey, instead of getting those like awful emails and those awful phone calls, which I know we've all received, (laughs) in which they sort of drone on for, for a bit before you even understand what it is they want from you, what they're trying to communicate, that they communicate efficiently and it feels personal. And they say, hey, your interests are the environment and recycling. Here's where the candidate stands on these specific issues that you seem to care about. We're going to feed you very relevant information because we're automating that. Um, You know, I I just think we're in the infancy of this and how it gets used is really going to depend on what happens in the next two to three years. Um, But it's going to be a really, either way, it's going to be hugely transformative. We just don't know in which direction. Does either of you know, as some of our uh, viewers are suggesting, uh, someone said they'd heard that Italy had banned AI. I don't know how practicable that would be. Um, And that the European Union is already considering the kind of guardrails that we may be rather behind on. What do you know about that? Yeah, I don't know about Kevin. Go ahead. I don't know about Italy. I believe Italy banned ChatGPT specifically, um, so you can't use it from inside the country now unless you're using a VPN or something like that. Um, And and I think that will probably give way. Like it doesn't strike me as being particularly realistic to ban all kinds of AI because we have to remember, like. These are. This is not just coming from a handful of companies, right? There are, you know, OpenAI is a big player. Google is a big player. You know, Facebook Meta is a big player. But there are also these open source models that are coming out now, where you don't have to register with anyone, and you can download it and run your own version on a laptop. And so, you know, if Italy or any other country really wants to clamp down on this, they not only have to go after ChatGPT and Bing and Google's barred, but they also have to go after these open language, these open source language models and image models. And that's going to be much harder to to do. So I I think rather than trying to sort of ban it or block it outright, uh, a a better regulatory um, sort of strategy is to sort of try to limit the misuses or to um, place restrictions on some of maybe the the training of the models itself. Mm -hmm. And sure, you were going to answer about the EU as well. I'm sorry, you're muted, Shira. 
Sorry, I'm an excellent Czech reporter here. Um, I was speaking to someone the other day in the EU who said that the US and the EU are, are one of the things they're working most closely on is regulation. I mean, the EU is very keen to see what the US is doing and they want to work in conjunction with the US on the regulation around this. And I would add that they also feel very strongly that both the US and the EU are worried about China when it comes to this. They're very concerned that China will race ahead. And so they want to be seen as being in lockstep, that whatever kind of technology emerges in the US is applied universally across the UK as well, sorry, the EU as well. And that that China doesn't come up with a product and with a, a generative AI model that is vastly better than the US's model, which then gets adopted. I mean, I think both of these, um, you know, politicians in both these areas are really looking at TikTok and what a problem TikTok has become both in the EU and the US because it's such a vastly uh, different social media platform that is so attractive for so many people that they can't really rein it in among their own citizens. And they don't want to see something like that happen with generative AI. Uh, Pat on the Among Our Viewers says, just recently, Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak and about 2000 scientists signed a petition requesting AI creators take a six-month moratorium on advancing AI technology until safeguards could be put in place to minimize the potential harm. Uh, is this plausible, uh, given the competitive nature you were just describing, not even within a country, but between countries? No, not going to happen. No, okay, so we have we have two votes on that. Um, is, is the risk that we're looking at from flawed or rogue AI, or is it just regular AI getting better and better at what it does without you know, having any sense of whether what it's doing is right or wrong? I, I can take that. Um, there, there are a couple dangers, types of dangers from AI. One is AI that doesn't work like it's supposed to. Um, you know, AI that makes bad judgments or has bugs in it where it's, it's you know, it's basically been uh, used for something that it's not ready for yet on a technical level. The other kind of danger is AI that works too well, that works really well. Um, and that's the kind of risk that a lot of people in Silicon Valley are starting to talk about. And that's the, the kind of risk that the people who signed that letter um, that I just said was not going to happen, which I don't think it is going to happen. But but there, that is a growing sentiment in the tech industry, including by some of the people at some of the labs that are producing this technology, um, is that this AI is rapidly sort of matching or exceeding human ability in lots of different things. So, you know, GPT-4, this latest language model that just came out, um, it passes the bar exam in the 90th percentile. Uh, so it, it it gets a better score on the bar exam than 90% of human law students. And you can, it, it you know, also aces a number of AP tests. It's, it's basically as smart as a college graduate on a lot of different things. And obviously it's not sentient. It's not, it's not, it's just, it's producing answers in the way that it produces everything, which is just to predict the next word in a sequence. But you can imagine a couple versions from now, you know, which may only be, you know, four or five years from now, this thing could be better than us at almost every kind of cognitive task we can imagine. And at that point, um, it's not clear what what our defense should be, because I think that that there comes a point where we just have to sort of reckon with the possibility that this thing might be smarter than us. Uh, and, and sure, Kevin used a phrase which caught my attention. They're beginning to reckon with. Haven't we had enough generations of tech to think only now you're beginning to reckon with this? Because it seems like the tech community is always so far behind the curve, maybe because they get so excited and they forget about these other consequences and possibilities. But by now, shouldn't we say, hey, look what's coming down the pike. Let's make sure that we're ready for it. 
So, uh, yes, I, I think that often. I mean, I, I, I know in the book that we wrote about Facebook, one of the themes that we kept coming back to was that in so many of these pivotal moments where Facebook is rushing ahead to get the next 1 billion users online or rushing ahead to, to roll out a new technology, there's nobody in the room that says, well, maybe we should think twice about Myanmar. Maybe Myanmar isn't the place for our technology. And maybe we should maybe have a, uh, you know, Burmese language expert that works at the company before. Right. So like, that's a moment we often see at these tech companies. And I'd say that, well, if in the past there was nobody in the room that was saying, hey, hold up, this could be dangerous. Now you've got like someone in the room, right? I'm not going to say it's the majority of the room. And if you've got 10 men in the room, and I'm sorry to say it's usually men because this technology is largely being created by male-led companies. Let's say you've got 10 men in the room, maybe like one or two of them are sounding an alarm and saying, what about this provision? What about this safeguard? Maybe we should rethink whether we allow these groups to use our new technology. So you have some voices in the room. They're not by any means, the majority, I want to be clear, but there's someone in the room these days that is trying to sound some warning. So we referred to, at least in passing, about um, putting some legislative guardrails onto this. And as we saw from the 90s and from the Internet, there's not a lot of understanding in Congress about what this may be. I think it was Senator Ted Stevens who referred to the Internet as a bunch of tubes. Um, so it's pretty basic, maybe pretty subject to lobbying as well. What are the prospects for any kind of legislation, especially when members of Congress will be presented with evidence from people saying AI could be used to manipulate battlefield actions? It could obviously help in terms of creating scenarios, but it might interfere with actual human decisions in this and override human decisions. So, so what do you think is possible and how far into those discussions are we? I think we're very much just at the beginning of this. I mean, I've talked to some lawmakers and and some some folks who are lobbying lawmakers, and they say, you know, we're in the very early innings of this. I mean, just look at how long it took Congress to actually even not even regulate social media, but just talking about regulating social media took a decade. And it took something going really wrong first in, in terms of the 2016 election and Russian interference. So a lot of people that I'm talking to think there's going to need to be some big inciting event, um, some disaster, some, you know, some foreign policy issue, some deep fake, you know, incident, something will have to go very wrong before Congress or or any uh, regulatory agency actually does sort of wake up and do something. And I think, unfortunately, uh, that's a pretty strong prediction. But we all also know, from example, how bad are the laws that come out of crisis regulation? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the danger here. And that's why a lot of I mean, one one thing that is, if you'll permit me to 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 do go on a little bit of a detour. But one thing that is hard about regulating these technologies is we still don't know all the things that it can do. So when the first large language models, that's what this genre of AI is called, were built the developers just thought they were training a machine to write. They thought, you know, we're going to train it on all this text and it's going to learn how to write. Then after they build it, built it and started testing it, they realized, oh, this thing can code too because it was trained on examples of code. So it can write programming languages as well as prose. 
And not only can it do that, but the same architecture can be used to predict the 3D structures of proteins, which is a, a very exciting advance in the field of biomedical research and is being used to accelerate drug discovery by pharmaceutical companies and things like that. So just, just looking at the technology as it exists today, it's not actually clear yet to them or to us what they would be regulating because these technologies have so many uses, including some ones that we probably don't know about yet. Uh, in a couple of minutes, I'll be asking each of you for a little bit of an upbeat prediction or hope for the future. But right now, Cher, I'd like to ask whether it looks like for a change, maybe tech companies are interested in helping construct these guardrails. Sometimes they've been very resistant, but the idea that they may be able to get some laws that they can, for lack of another phrase, hide behind and not be entirely legally or publicly morally accountable if these things go awry. Is there a different attitude you see in Silicon Valley and beyond when it comes to some regulation for AI? No, Pat, that's that's an astute way of looking at it. I, I think that what these companies have learned is that if something goes wrong, they will be blamed. And some regulation is better than no regulation. They are still scrambling to get the government to come up with regulation around social media that they can then use, as you said, to hide behind. And I think you see a lot of these companies, a lot of the heads of these companies really, really strongly getting behind regulation because they know they they want to be able to realistically point the finger elsewhere when something goes wrong and says, well, you didn't create laws that were good enough or the mistake here is in the laws, not in our company, not in our technology. So, you know, this is very different than it was in the early 2000s when a lot of these social media companies got off the ground and they were scared of any kind of government interference. You really hear a lot of the, the heads of these uh, companies now openly saying, we need regulation immediately. We want to help you come up with the regulation and we want it tomorrow, not in two years time. Is there anyone in Congress who, or, or the administration who has some plausible ideas or is leading a plausible charge for that? It depends what you mean by plausible. Um, there are definitely people with ideas. The Biden administration has its its blueprint for AI safety, um, which is sort of a, a policy set of policy proposals. Um, I've talked to other members of Congress who have their own ideas. I think they're they're still trying to wrap their heads around this issue. And I think that when something does come out, it'll it won't be sort of a hard and fast regulation. It'll be more like sort of interpretability or transparency. You know, you have to, if you're going to build a system that can pass the bar exam in the 90th percentile, you have to tell us what data you trained it on or how it works. And that's still the kind of thing that is, is considered a trade secret by these companies. And so um, some of the regulation may be more draconian than that, maybe in the EU or, or elsewhere. But right now in the US, I don't see a lot of appetite for clamping down on this entirely, in part because I think that would clamp down on some pretty legitimate and beneficial uses. Always the risk. Uh, Kevin, can you give us one upbeat minute and then I'll go to Shira as we wrap up? Yeah, I, I love generative AI. I've been using these chatbots daily for the last six months, and I find them really compelling and interesting and, and useful. So I've, I've used it to teach myself concepts, like it's it's a tutor for me. It also acts as an editor. I, I will sometimes ask it uh, about an idea I have for a story and say, critique this idea and get some useful feedback that way. And I've used it to make art, including a, a, a painting that's hanging on my wall, which I guess technically isn't a painting. It's an AI generated image. Is that the one but behind you? <laughs> no, no, this oh. is not the this is not the one. It's 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 uh, elsewhere in my house. But I, I do find 
that these systems have some incredibly um, fun and useful properties too. So I hope people are not so scared by the implications for democracy that they don't want to try them because I think everyone should give these things a spin. They are really uh, incredible and fascinating. Flawed, certainly, um, but, uh, but, but really interesting and, and potentially useful. Thank you. Cheryl, what can you tell us? Um, really, I mean, it goes back to my comment just minutes ago, but that this time around with this new technology, you do have people that have learned some lessons from the mistake of the past, right? You have you have journalists in the room that are asking them difficult questions. You have heads of these companies that watched Mark Zuckerberg testify to Congress after the Russian election interference in Cambridge Analytica. They don't want to be testifying in front of Congress with the entire American public hating them. So I would say that that all of these heads of companies have learned something, and and it might be that they make entirely new and different mistakes than their predecessors, but they are keen to not repeat the mistakes of the past. Well, we're about to boldly go, and we will find out once we get there whether or not the destination was worth the journey. Thank you both very much for joining us. Shira Frankel is a best-selling author of An Ugly Truth and a New York Times tech reporter. Kevin Proust, a New York Times tech columnist and author of Future Proof and other books. Thank you so very much.